Okay, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. So in Revelation 10, we've come to the middle of Revelation, which by the way, you should congratulate yourself. You now made it halfway through a book that many Christians never read and they say it's too difficult. So pat yourself on the back a little bit. I think we're learning, yeah. Um, this is a pause. This is intermission. Here's what I mean. Um, we kind of end the chronology right here. It's going to pick back up in chapter 11 because we're looking at a series of events that will eventually lead to the greatest doctrine in the church, the return of Jesus Christ to earth. Jesus coming to earth, we're going to celebrate Christmas in a couple weeks, is a tale of two comings, right? He came the first time to die for the sins of the world, the Lamb of God. He comes the second time to judge the world. And we are seeing the events that would lead to that. Revelation 6 to 18, as John is in heaven, he said this glorious vision around God's throne of worship and the redeemed. And he sees um, all the saints that have been gathered in. It's a wonderful vision. And then the seals start to get broken. And John sees some things that he doesn't want to see. He sees death and pestilence and violence and things coming upon the earth. And when the seventh seal was opened, the trumpets begin to sound. And there's more devastation. We looked at it last week, the chapter 8, a little bit of chapter 9. A third of the earth is burned, a third of the sea is polluted, a third of mankind is killed. Uh, when the fifth seal or trumpet is blown, there's an angel that's given the key to a bottomless pit, and that has to be in the earth. The only place you could have a bottomless pit is a sphere. And these demons that have been in chains for a long, long time, way back from Genesis 6, are released. And they begin to cause havoc on the earth. Chapter 9, verse 6 says, In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. That's all you need to know about this time period. Jesus told us in Matthew 24, there would be great tribulation. There would be three and a half years of God's wrath on the earth where Jesus said if those days weren't shortened, no flesh would survive. And he said, there hasn't been a time like it, nor will there ever be. And that's what we've been looking at. And John is experiencing that. We've been reading it. And it's somewhat devastating, right? Looking at the earth, looking at mankind, and understanding that God is a God that's slow to anger, and his mercy abounds, and he's a God of love, and he doesn't want anybody to perish. And all of a sudden in heaven, there's complete silence. And really, in my opinion, it's only God, John, and the angels that are seeing this devastation that's coming upon the earth. And in some ways, it's like God hits the pause button for John and gives him a fresh revelation of who he is. Now, I am a firm believer, and I've lived this out for 36-some years, that we all need a fresh revelation from time to time from God. Do you, you all believe that? You know, I think in our journey, we're, we're going to hit proverbial walls now and again. And I think God has to reveal himself in fresh ways, new horizons. I'm not talking about visions like seeing a vision like John does, like an angel here, but I'm just talking about an innate vision for our lives and what God's doing in the world. Uh, when I first became a Christian, you probably had this experience, everything was new, right? Church was new, the Bible was new, the songs were new, telling all my friends about Jesus, people were coming to salvation, Spirits moving, get Holy Ghost goosebumps and supernatural provision, right? Checks coming in the mail and your pantry's filling up and God's doing wonderful things. And then somewhere, and I don't know where it is, you hit this wall, right? And all of a sudden, you know, God's not speaking like he used to. 
The ravens aren't feeding you anymore. You actually have to go out and get a job to provide, right? And church is not the same, and, you know, everything's changing a bit. And then all of a sudden, God gives you a new horizon. And then another one, and then another one. Sometimes it comes because you read a book and you get challenged. Sometimes it's a mission trip. Sometimes you find a church that's kind of on point with the mission or the cause that you want to be involved in. Sometimes you join a serving team. And God has these new and fresh revelations. This past week, I took 10 of our youngest staff up to New York City for a regional conference. Two days of hearing of pastors in the five boroughs, what God's doing in New York. Some of these pastors are from Australia. Some of them are white, black, Latino. Some of them were former drug addicts. Some of them left law firms. And after two days, you're just kind of walking on air because God is moving in the most influential city in the world. And you kind of get a new vision for his activity in your life and in the world. And this is what happens to John here in Revelation 10. Because John is 90 years old. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's seen the church grow in the book of Acts but now all the other apostles have died, and he's probably beginning to wonder what's going on in the world. Rome is persecuting Christians, and the church is somewhat stalled out. And now John, who has seen the glory of Jesus Christ and this wonderful unveiling of Jesus in all his glory and all his power, now sees judgment coming upon the earth. And this isn't a movie, guys. Last week I talked about Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. They were hard to watch. They were movies. This is real. This is really going to happen. And John saw it rolling out. And it's almost like God has to hit a pause button and has to encourage John in what he's seeing. Trumpets are blowing. Devastation is coming upon the earth. Let me show you one last trumpet before we get into the vision John has. Verse 15, it says, Four angels who have been prepared for the hour and day, a month, and year. This is their only job. They were prepared for the beginning of time for this one thing. Were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. And I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. And those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their um, mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Now, John has no idea what he's looking at. And he's trying to find language for it. Now, fast forward the clock 2,000 years, and this makes more sense to us reading it than it did to John. Why? This 200 million man army, there weren't even 200 million people on the earth when John wrote. He had no idea what China would become he had no idea the world players that would be in place. He had no idea of the technology and whether this is demonic activity or it sure looks like mechanized artillery to me. These are the nations gathering for World War III at Armageddon against Israel and ready to fight against God. And he's seeing all this carnage. And the final verse is that these men with all that's going on did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their lies, their immoralities, or their thefts. And God hits the pause button, and he says, John, here's what I want you to see. And the thing that he sees, and there's two of them, an angel and a little book. An angel and a little book, and this is going to comfort John. Let's start with the angel. 
Now, it's fascinating how many angels we've seen in the book of Revelation, right? Uh, over 60 times we've seen angels here. These angels who are ready to go out, you know, with the 200 million man army, release them. We've seen the seven angels who stand around the throne of God. That's all they do. I think Gabriel's one of them. The Bible tells us about seraphim, cherubim. Uh, this angel's a bad dude. He's got one foot on earth, one foot on the sea. Jesus told us our angels see the face of God every day. I really do believe we have guardian angels. I believe I've experienced it. I was a young Christian. My dad was a landscaper. And we were finishing up the last house. Put all this brush on the back of the truck. I climbed up. All the other guys jumped in the cab. I said, guys, I'm just going to sit in the back. And I sat facing forward. And my dad began to back out. And as we were backing out, I was daydreaming, and I felt a tap on my back. I thought it was my brother. I turned around. There was a rim right here at my head. I ducked instantly right under it. Had I hit the back of my head there, I would have fallen off. God knows what would have happened. I know that was an angel. That was a tap on my back. Uh, several years ago in my house, I cleaned my gutters. I'm tall enough. I can stand on my porch roof and clean gutters like this. <laughs> so I'm making my way down daydreaming, cleaning my gutters. And as I'm going, I feel something stop me like a hand. And I look down and I was at the end of my porch. One more step and I would have been gone once again. So I know we have guardian angels. And the Bible gives us this peek into a spirit world. And we're seeing a lot of it here in Revelation. And John sees this mighty angel. And the word mighty Maybe a tip-off. Scholars believe this is Jesus Christ. Other scholars believe it's not. The imagery sure looks like it from chapter 1. Verse 1 says that he's clothed with a cloud. A rainbow's on his head. His face was like the sun. His feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book in his hand. He put one foot on the sea and one on the, on the earth. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, I don't care what this angel looks like. I'm more concerned with what he says. And when he says, or when he speaks, seven thunders come out. Now, I know what he says is important because John's writing like a beast. John's writing every word. I mean, this is glorious. Whatever it is, is powerful. The problem is the angel tells John, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and don't write them. Now this is strange. Because when Daniel wrote his prophecy, he was told to seal it up till the time of the end. And in the time of the end, when many run to and fro and knowledge increases, um, this book would be unsealed, and it has. And John was told when he writes Revelation, do not seal the book. God wants this information in his people's hands, because whenever people get the word of God in their hands, things explode. All of a sudden, John is told to seal this book. Why? The only clue we get is that the angel raised his hand and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, Notice the redundancy. He created them. Here's the clue. 
that there should be delay no longer. And verse 7 says, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. And notice this, which the prophets talked about. The only thing we know about this message was there would be delay no longer. So we've been asking you guys to text us your questions. Some of the questions are really good. Next week we're going to do another Q&A. But no one has texted the ultimate question. The ultimate question of the book of Revelation is, why hasn't Jesus returned? He said, behold, I come quickly. The early church believed he was coming. Paul said, we who are alive and remain will be caught up with the Lord. They thought the rapture could happen in their time. The Thessalonian church, they were working and looking to heaven for the return of Christ. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, was coined by the church. It was the prayer of the early church and the church through the ages. So why has Jesus not come? I believe the angel declared that truth to him. I believe this angel, when he thundered with all these voices, declared why Jesus has waited in the heavens so long. And it, 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 it kind of revolves around this verse 7, the mystery of God. Now, there are many mysteries, but it's not like a mystery that only a few people can figure out. It's not the secret. A mystery in the Bible is something previously hidden that light has now been shed on that we can understand. I'll give you an example. Paul writes about the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, took on a human body. So in a few weeks when we celebrate Christmas, that is a mystery. How does God become a man? How does a baby laying in a manger hold the world together with the word of his power? How does the creator become the creation? It's a mystery. It was a more of a mystery to those in the Old Testament who were reading about it. We understand it to a greater degree because that mystery's been unlocked. What about the mystery of iniquity? The mystery of iniquity is, why has God allowed Satan to do what he does? Why does he allow Satan in your life, in my life? Why does he let him steal, kill, and destroy? It's a mystery. There's the mystery of Israel. This was such a mystery to Paul in chapters 9 to 11. He said, I'd rather be damned or cursed. In other words, I'd rather go to hell so all these people could be saved. It was a mystery. So what is this mystery of God that the prophets wrote about? The mystery of God, and we're going to look at this in Revelation 20, is when God will finally set all things right. We have a fancy term for it. We call it the millennium. It's not in Revelation 20. It's called the thousand-year reign of Christ, Latin millennium. It's a time when the purposes of God will be fully realized on earth. It's a period when the full manifestation of Jesus Christ will be known to everyone. In layman's terms, God will show us what the world would have looked like had Adam and Eve never fell. For a thousand years, God will say, this was plan A. This was the way the world should look. Now, we don't have to guess at what this time frame looks like. When we get to Revelation 20, we'll look at it in more detail. But I want to give you kind of just um, a peek see, just a real quick look at what this time will look like. Um, the clearest verse is Isaiah chapter 6. 
chapter 11, verse 6, where it says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. We'll put that picture on the screen for you because it says everything about this time period. Now, you've heard the misquote, the lion will lie down with the lamb, okay? That's not the quote, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Leave that up there for a minute because it goes on further. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little child will lead them. <clears throat> the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall be down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That picture you're looking at is what a thousand years will look like when Satan's bound, and in so many words, when the curse is reversed. Remember Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, God brought a curse on the earth? Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to work, and Eve, in pain, you'll bring forth children. Now, we only got two examples there, but we know things radically changed. Man didn't eat meat before the fall. The earth didn't look the way it does now. And then there was the flood that came into being. God's going to reverse this. Skeptics look at the animal kingdom and they say, there can't be any God because look at the animal kingdom. They eat each other and it's horrible and it's horrific. One day God's going to reverse that. And people say, well, why do lions have fangs? Well, they're going to eat straw like the ox. Maybe God's going to use their power to assist people in doing other things or other animals, I don't know. But this is a time when God will set the world the way it was meant to be. This is the world we were meant to live in. It will be a world of peace and joy. Isaiah writes that they will beat their swords in the plowshares, their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation will never rise against nation, and neither will they learn war anymore, thank God. Do you know after World War II, leaders and academics got together in Europe and the reason they got together is they said, how did this happen to a modern, affluent, enlightened people? How did this happen? How did we kill 50 million people? That verse I just read to you was on the wall of the UN. Anybody have hope that the UN's going to bring about final peace? I don't. As Christians, we're called to be pessimistic and optimistic. Pessimistic about man and very optimistic about God. Habakkuk 2.4 says there will be full knowledge of God. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. No more missionaries. Isaiah 65 verse 20 says the quality of life will change. There will be healing of all sicknesses, a fullness of spirit, unified worship. People will live longer. No longer will an infant die, but will live to 100 years. We get another glimpse in Revelation 22 when we see the new Jerusalem, the trees for the healing of the nations. We see all that God wants to do and all God desired to do, but the question still remains, if this is God's intent, why the delay? And it leads to more questions, and we all have these questions. Why does God allow human suffering? Why, if God's all-powerful, doesn't he enter in and change things? We can go on and on and on. 
And all the great men and women of God have had these questions. John the Baptist, who leaped in his mother's womb the first time he was in the presence of Jesus and who baptized Jesus, the greatest man born of woman, sent his disciples to Jesus and said, are you the one or do we look for another? And the only reason John doubted is because he was in prison and he knew he was never getting out. Suffering has a way of doing that to us. When we lose the ones we love, it has a way of doing things to us. It doesn't measure up with what we know about God and, and what God could do if he's all-powerful and almighty. Now, John's a little smarter than that because he was with Jesus for three years. There was a time when there was a blind man, and the disciples asked a common question. Who sinned that this man was born blind? The common idea was if somebody was blind, it must have been sin, right? Jesus said, neither. You can't connect the dots that way. The problem is he didn't tell them why. Later on, he said that the Tower of Siloam fell and killed 18 Galileans. And again, showing them you can't connect the dots that they were sinners and they had it coming and all that. He said, do you think they were worse sinners than everyone else in the Galilee? And he said, no. But he didn't tell them why the tower fell and killed 18. So John has some understanding, but now he's looking at a third of mankind, billions of people dying. He's seeing the wrath of God in ways most of us could never understand. And Jesus isn't coming. He's delayed. And John wants to know why. And so the angel comes and he utters his voices and John's writing down and I believe the angel told John why. Here's the problem. He wasn't allowed to tell us. So we don't know. The mystery of the ages, we don't know. John knows. Here's the beautiful thing. One day we're going to know. The Bible says one day we're going to know as we're known. One day we're going to sit in heaven or wherever we're at and we're going to have things revealed to us where the penny's going to drop and everything's going to click and we're going to agree with everything God has ever done. It's all going to make sense. Why did God allow this? Why did God allow that? Why did this happen? All the why questions will cease. Ezekiel says we're going to look at Satan and say, is this the one who deceived the nations? Is this the one? And almost everything's going to make sense at that time. Now the question is, what do we do until that time? Well, the second thing John is given, a vision by an angel, and this little book. Let's read those verses again. The voice which I heard, verse 8, from heaven, spoke to me again and said, take this little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And I went to the angel and said to him, give me this little book. And he said, take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Now, why would the angel tell John to eat a book? Well, we have kind of some inside knowledge on this. Remember back in Ezekiel chapter 2, the prophet Ezekiel was told to go and minister to Israel? And he saw the outline of a man's hand with a little book. And he was told to take and eat of that scroll. 
and that he was going to prophesy to a nation that was backslidden and rebellious, and they weren't going to listen to him, and it was as sweet as honey, but his ministry would be bitter. David in Psalm 19 said, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than gold, listen, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them, and your word to me was joy and rejoicing. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I think it's only fitting that John was told to eat because he was the one, when he wrote about Jesus Christ, said it was the word that was made flesh. It was the word that dwelt among us. It was the word. John's relationship with Jesus was through the word. And this is where we live. And this is where if we're going to have fresh revelations of what God's doing in our life and in the world, it's going to come from the word. I am um, saddened many times of how malnutrition God's people are when it comes to the scriptures. There's pockets of people who are believing false things or their hope is in things that will never happen or aren't true. And then some people just have like a base of scriptures they understand when there's the totality of God's word. John, eat this, devour it, assimilate, meditate. It's going to be sweet. This has been my experience for 36 years. It's the only comfort in this world. It's the only comfort we have, guys. I love to worship and sing, and that comforts me for a little while. I love my family, and I love you guys, and that comforts me for a little while. But man, the only thing I have is to open this word and let the sweetness come out. To remember I'm a child of God, to remember that he knows my name, to remember that he's intimately involved with my life. It's so sweet to me. And it's so sweet when I read about the things that God has laid up for those who love him and the rewards and, and, and all of these great and precious promises. To wake up in the morning and to read the Psalms, to go to bed reading a gospel, and to let the word of God assimilate into your spirit is like honey. Now the problem is it makes us bitter in our stomach. Why? Because there's good news and there's bad news, right? The good news is whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The bad news is whoever doesn't will spend eternity without Christ. And when you read the scriptures, and especially when you read the book of Revelation, what's coming upon the world, and when you look at where the world's going and how people are living, they could care less about our message. You try and tell people about the love of God and what he can do for their life. No one wants to hear it, seemingly. And we're swimming against the tide. And people think we're crazy. You go to that church and you give your money and you go on missions trips. You should be climbing the ladder of success. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. And it kind of beats us down and it wears us down. David said, my foot almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I saw all the things I could be attaining. But then it all made sense when I went in the house of God and realized their end and where this is really going. Guys, we all need a fresh vision of God and what he's doing in our life in the world. And 99% of it, it's going to come through his word. I can't tell you how many times 
I was in a place or in my room where I could tell you in rooms what chair I was sitting when the word of God was taught and my heart just enlarged and God spoke and I knew I had to step out and do something. Those were precious moments. Not long after Monica and I had become Christians, our church fell apart and closed its doors. So we did what a lot of you have done. It's a terrible experience, church shopping. Oh my gosh. So every week we're going to a new church, and every week it was like, ah, this doesn't feel right, and you know, whatever. And, and I remember one day pulling into a parking lot, and I just looked at my wife, the kids were asleep, and I said, and I didn't even know what expositional teaching was, I said, isn't there a church that teaches the Bible verse by verse? Because we were taught topical messages about faith and healing and all that. Two weeks later, we walked into Calvary Chapel. The worship was soothing. And when the word of God was taught, it was like skin was coming on our bones. And we knew we were home. And we sat there, and it was like a hospital, and God began to repair our hearts. And then the word of God, the more it was taught, God enlarged our hearts for Delaware County, and then God gave us the horizon of starting this church, and then new horizons of getting involved with <clears throat> so many missions across this country and the world. And this is the way God works. He gives fresh visions. And it's not only for us, it's for our marriages, for our families. This is why we do retreats and men's conferences. It's not only for our churches, but it's for institutions. Uh, I think most of you know that Harvard University was started by Christians with the goal of filling the pulpits in New England with ministers. After 80 years, that vision kind of drifted and Harvard became secularized. A group of pastors got together led by clergyman Cotton Mather with the idea of establishing a new college where this dream could once again flourish. They contacted a man named Elihu Yale, who was a very well-financed philanthropic guy to finance their efforts, and in 1718 started Yale University. They took the same motto as Harvard, Veritas, and they added lux onto it, light and truth, and they prayed they would avoid the drift they had seen in Harvard. Today, neither Harvard nor Yale resembles the universities their founders envisioned. At the 350th anniversary of Harvard, Stephen Muller, former president of John Hopkins, didn't mince words. The bad news is the university has become godless. Larry Summer, once president of Harvard, confirmed Muller's assessment, acknowledging things divine have been central neither to my professional or personal life. That's what happens when there's no fresh revelation and vision of what God can do. And in the end, hope is lost. It can happen to churches, it can happen to institutions, it can happen to marriages, it can happen to families, it can happen to our lives. And God doesn't want it to happen to John, and he has this angel come in. And John, once again, sees that God is in control. That though God must judge the earth, he's given answers to life's deepest questions. Questions we don't know or understand but we have this little book we can assimilate the word of God into our hearts my challenge every week to you is that you would somehow get an infusion of God's word in your spirit each and every day 
I don't care if it's through podcasts or apps or real Bibles or books, whatever it is. Because I know the gospel works. I know that the seeds, that when they go in your heart, they produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. This is what God's called to us. This is what sustains us. And where we're all moving, and we're getting so close. Some of us close in that we're going to die. And some of us, maybe we'll see the coming of Christ. Thousand year reign. Jesus coming in all his glory. And then when that's all said and done, a new Jerusalem comes down. A city, not a suburb. A city. Cities aren't bad. In fact, when everybody loves one another, when love covers the earth, cities are going to be great. John's writing, and he's going to send this back to the churches that are persecuted, and there's going to be hope, and this hope has sustained people for thousands of years. I'll close with this. In 1950, if you went into a bookstore, there was no section called fantasy. No sci-fi, no Stories like we know now, right? Half of our movies are sci-fi. We have DC and Marvel. And you go in a bookstore today, it's like huge, the section, right? Didn't exist in 1950. And J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, was asked why people actually like this genre. He said there's five reasons. One, people want to step outside of time. Two, they want to escape death. Three, they want their love relationships never to end. They want to communicate with non-human beings. And they want good to triumph over evil. Tolkien, who was a Christian, said, the reason why they want this is because that's because they, they were made for. That's the longing of their heart. It's an itch that can never be scratched because it's who we were meant to be. Why is Jesus delayed? Think about this for a minute. He could have come at any time. In fact, while he was on earth, he came into Jerusalem one day on a colt, and they put down palm branches on the road, and they said, Hail, the king of the Jews. Do you remember what Jesus said? He wept over Jerusalem, and he said, How I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you have missed in this your day. You missed the day. This is the day he was to be made king. In fact, he said the very stones would have cried out if they didn't cry out. They missed the day of their visitation. Now, we know he had to come to die, and in the foreknowledge of God, we knew it couldn't have been them, but the kingdom has been trying to come all along. And something's holding him back. But here's what we know. At the resurrection, Jesus punched a wall between this world and the world we long for. He opened the curtain. And we can see it clearly. We have the Spirit as a down payment. We have this revelation. We have more than anybody's ever had. And there is a reality of things to come. And the things to come are a place where time will cease. And we will be reunited with loved ones. And we'll never lose them again. And we are going to communicate with some strange creatures. We've been looking at that in Revelation. And we will live forever. And the world will be set right and we will be known as we are fully known. And the promises of God will all be yes and amen. But not yet. But not yet.
There's something keeping Christ in the heavens. And when we get to heaven, we'll know why. But not yet. But you know what's beautiful? In Revelation 22, we already read that God would wipe away every tear. All sorrow will be gone. And then there's this promise. I am making everything new. Go back and read it. It doesn't say he will make everything new. It said, behold, I am making everything new. While we're waiting, he's making everything new. While we're in this holding tank, he's bringing new life everywhere we look. People are getting saved. Missions are being started. Families are being restored. Marriages are being restored. People are being healed. The work of God is going on. He is rebuilding, but not yet in its fullness. There will be a day. And while we're here, we need a fresh vision, not only for what God's doing in our life, but what he's already rebuilding around us. I like to challenge myself every year to read three or four good biographies. I want to read stories of people who risked everything for God because it inspires me in my own life. I want to go to great conferences. I want to get around God's people. I want to get around old people and young people. I want to see what God's doing. I want to feel his presence. But more than anything, I need this little book to remind me that God loves me that what I promised to him, he'll never take away. That what I've committed to him, he's holding to the final day. And his banner over me is love. That's what this little book tells me. And it's my joy to take you through it. It's my joy to read it with you. We are discovering blessings. I pray in the new year we would discover more.